0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com.
1: We as Americans have the capacity now as we've had in the past to do whatever needs to be done to preserve this last and greatest bastion of freedom. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Listen to my man, Ronald Reagan. Government is always the problem. And think about it. When's the last time the government did something without screwing it all up? Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Cowboy State Politics. I'm your host, David Iverson, broadcasting to you from the base of the Bighorns in beautiful Buffalo, Wyoming. We've got a great show for you tonight, a really special guest that I'll introduce here in a minute. But before we get there... You can find everything Cowboys State Politics on the website, com. You can listen to the podcast on any of your favorite apps, iTunes, Pandora, TuneIn, any of those, and don't forget to hit the subscribe button. But I think that's probably enough self-promotion for right now. On with the show. Wyoming just elected its fifth libertarian congressman to the House of Representatives, and the first since 2002. Uh, His name's Marshall Burt from around Rock Springs. But it occurred to me that most people really don't know anything about the Libertarian Party or what it means to be a Libertarian. Libertarians get blasted as anarchists that don't want any sort of government whatsoever or as right-wing extremists that don't think that there should be any restrictions on freedom. And that's just not the case. To put it simply, Libertarians believe in the least amount of government interference possible. I'm a registered Republican, and the reason for that is so that I can actually vote in all the elections. But really, I'm a libertarian in the sense of John Stuart Mill. Now, we've, cu- we've talked about it a couple times on the program, that I think that the only acceptable use of government authority or power is to prevent... Prevent harm to another person. That's called the harms principle. And it's at this point that we begin our discussion with Chris Spangle, one of the leading voices in the libertarian movement. So here's our interview from last week. I hope you enjoy it. I'm joined today by Chris Spangle. Chris is the founder of the We Are Libertarians Network. He's a 15-year veteran of politics and media. He also is the digital director for a nationally syndicated morning radio show that you might have heard of, The Bob and Tom Show. And he was the executive director of the Libertarian Party of Indiana. Chris, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me on. Um, So where I wanted to start is just kind of in general, how did you arrive at being a libertarian?
0: Well, I started uh, falling in love with politics as a kid. And I think it started listening to Rush Limbaugh and my grandma's Mazda Miata, as she would yell about the liberals as a kid as she drove drove me around and then got really into the the clinton impeachment and i was from a republican family and so i was very uh, all for him getting impeached and uh i remember skipping a movie for instance to sit in the car and listen to the senate uh, acquit him essentially i i thought it was high drama not knowing that the outcome had already been predetermined and then what you know went to washington dc on that sixth grade field trip and just Like it was just such a a cool experience and always loved history and politics. And uh, then I really got involved in politics in the Republican Party when 9-11 happened. I was 18. I turned 18 two days before 9-11. And it was just foundation shaking for me from so many different in so many different ways. And so um, really got involved in politics, started volunteering for Republican campaigns, went on to be the. Um, the, uh, the chairman of the college Republicans in 2004 at my college. And we were looking for a campaign to work with and went to work for a guy named Andy Horning. Uh, and he was running for Congress and he was a libertarian. And wasn't the first time I'd heard the word. The first time I'd heard the word was on Neil Bortz because I was a big talk radio fan And when he told me what a libertarian was, we got a chance to talk a lot about it and uh, was very foundational in teaching me a a lot about libertarianism and politics. And then I went to work at a talk radio station and the host was fairly libertarian. His name was Abdul Hakim Shabazz and he started picking apart all my Rush (laughs) arguments. And I realized I didn't really know a lot about what I was saying. Like I was just talking out of my behind. And he ended up, um, excuse me, I have COVID. Uh, (laughs) So he, uh, you know, it started to do a lot of research and I, I decided to start calling myself a libertarian. The one thing I couldn't get my head around was the foreign policy stuff because obviously after five years of being a bushy, it was like, uh, well, I can't think this way because of these reasons. And Ron Paul and the debates against Rudy Giuliani really helped kind of seal that deal. So ended up going on to work for the libertarian party of Indiana. They, they, they were pretty ineffective. And I said, why? And they said, we don't have an executive director. I said, well, you can't pay me less than I'm making at the radio (laughs) station. So uh, I ended up doing that for four years and, uh, haven't looked back since. I mean, I really, uh, finding libertarianism really uh was a, a game changer i mean it was like i knew i didn't quite fit in the republican party i had almost gotten impeached for thinking that gay marriage was fine and that immigration needed to uh be reformed according to what bush said and the, the other republicans just were like who right kind of freak well, are around here we um,
1: say you know if you're not if you're not a liberal when you're 20 you don't have a heart and if you're not a conservative by the time you're 40 you don't have a brain so maybe right. um, maybe we ought to define so, uh, for our listeners uh, what exactly a libertarian is. Why don't you give me your definition and then I'll I'll respond. I mean,
0: really, it's the rules that you were taught as a kid. Don't hit people. Don't take other people's stuff. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't steal. You know, it's really about treating other people like you want to be treated and and not not hurting them. Uh, and those are the basic rules of society. And. The government doesn't abide by those rules because inherently it forces people to do what other people want them to do. It, if you don't pay your taxes or if you don't obey some law, you go to jail, you get fined out of existence, that's force. And so we're for, we use the government to force people to do certain things as opposed to persuading them. And it should be voluntary. So I'm all for arranging society in the moral ways that we were taught as kids as opposed to saying one thing and doing another as a group. I agree. Adults. I mean,
1: that's that's basically Milton Friedman's um, definition of uh, of being what being a libertarian is. For me, I got interested in politics when I joined the speech and debate team in high school, and reading reading John Stuart Mill's On Liberty was a revelation for me. That uh, you know, the mm. only acceptable use of force is to prevent harm to another person. Other than that we need to have as limited government as possible. And I think that, mm-hmm. um, well, actually, let me get to my second question here, because I think it kind of dovetails. Um, you and I have a lot more in common than, than I initially realized. I'm, I don't mean to out you, but we're both working on finishing a history degree. And, and mm-hmm. interestingly yeah. enough, the only class I have less, left is also Spanish. <laughs> uh, but I think that knowledge <laughs> yeah. is a prerequisite to liberty. You know, uh, our founders, you know, Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, uh, they were pretty much all self-educated people uh, for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, admittedly, they were brilliant, but self-educated people created one of the greatest liberty documents in, in history, in my opinion. Now, I think that, and I listened to your podcast about the student, student debt crisis, so that's kind of where I'm going with this. Um, I think that okay. tyranny comes in a lot of different forms. M- maybe tyranny with a little T, perhaps. Uh, one of those is in education. You know, people say that you have to you have to get a degree, but that comes at the cost of trillions of dollars in student debt and a huge crop of uneducated young people. So, what uh, what in your opinion is a libertarian free market solution to it, one educating people and two More generally, for the student debt crisis.
0: Well, education, I I mean, it's tough because it's a two part solution there. And and libertarians are really good at the first part, which is get government out of everything. And so they're they're very good at kind of articulating what we need to do to uh, make sure that the government doesn't continue to mess certain things up. They're very poor at the second part, which is talking about what we ought to do on the other side of that. Right, absolutely. Uh, and so, and, and I count my, I call myself the, the chief offender on that a lot of times. Um, and so, you know, the first step is to start rolling back what we've done. I mean, the Department of Education, for instance, has cost billions of dollars and it's, and it's not improved test scores. It's only improved, uh, it's only uh, proven to, put in place these standards that rob teachers of the ability to do their God-given gift of teaching children. You know, if you talk to a teacher, they're so miserable because they don't have the freedom to teach there's teaching to tests and to standards. And it wasn't that way when I was in school 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, it's really kind of crept up since no child left behind. Well, George Bush, because he felt he was on you know, tenuous ground because of the 2000 election, felt that he had to have some bipartisan piece of legislation to unite the country, worked with Teddy uh, Kennedy, passed No Child Left Behind, passed all these standards. That's blossomed over time into things like Common Core. And, and it's robbed the spirit of, of education in local school districts because it's all centralized. And so now you have you know, administrators and teachers who are just very unhappy with what they're doing. And so start removing some of that stuff, removing the 535 people in Washington, D.C. shouldn't have authority over local school districts and parents locally. It's really up to the local administrators and teachers to to plot out what they're doing. And that's the first step. And removing that power, returning power back to local authority, letting people find new solutions, lifting restrictions that kind of keep educators and school districts in the same sort of rote system of memorization that we have. And that's one of the beautiful things about the school choice movement, which leads us to the second part, is that Indianapolis is a hotbed of school choice. I have on my wall the books of Friedman um, because I brought a bunch of people to a Friedman Foundation event. It's headquarters here. It's a Milton Friedman uh, Foundation built on School Choice, that's headquarters here, the Lumina Foundation, you know, all of these different groups are here in Indianapolis working on school choice and and new models of education, and Democrats and Republicans here locally and statewide are all for it. They work together because they go, whatever we were doing was not working, we need to find new solutions, and time and time again, it's the federal government and their mandates that are getting in their way, and, um, you know, Mayor Bart Peterson, a Democrat, spearheaded the the, uh, charter school movement here in Indianapolis. A a Democrat was the only one that was going to get that done. And what that did is it brought so much competition. Now, the, the charter school movement has some mixed reviews here locally, but it put so much pressure on IPS and the local school district that they created what was called innovation schools. My niece goes to one of these. And so now you have different models of education. Uh, She's in one that focuses on nature. There's one that has programming on art. And it's really helping children learn in the way that they learn best. And so the innovation schools in the public school system, they're autonomous schools from even the IPS board, but they're funded through that, have been revolutionary for the students in Indianapolis. And it starts starts there, you know, and then on to... To college, when you look at what broke college, it's two things. First, it is the backing of student loans based on the federal uh, government saying, we'll pay whatever it costs. Well, then why are we paying it back? And then secondly, they guaranteed student loans, which raised tuition. Then secondly, they started to uh, push states through Obamacare to fund schools more and more or or to fund health care more and more, I should say, state Medicaid and Medicare. And what that did is that shrunk the pool of available money for state schools and state higher education, and that rose tuition as well. And so when you look at the root causes of why things are expensive or why people are stuck at a certain level, uh, it usually trickles back to bad policy. And once you start peeling back that bad
1: policy and letting people innovate, like we've seen in Indianapolis, you well, get great I, results. I couldn't agree more. See, I mean, in Wyoming... We're we're blessed to have a, a pretty independent um, education system. You know, in the in in the high schools, they're they're not not completely, but they're funded by county government through through extractive industries, uh, mineral royalties. So if you travel around Wyoming and visit different high schools, they're they're very different depending upon the community that they happen to be in. the, the one that's here in Buffalo, Wyoming. I mean, we have a fantastic school, and I think that aside from the, you know, the federal mandates, teachers are fairly free to, um, you know, to, to do what they do best, you know, and that's teach. And also, you know, with, we have a pretty good community college system here. In fact, one of them um, was part of a what they call a, uh, a district here, and they just decided because of COVID actually to become privately funded. So right now the state is working on getting that college out of this district so that they can just completely be privately funded, and I think that's you know that's one of the advantages of living in a in a small state uh, where you know we can have local control over education.
0: And the biggest villains across the board are teachers unions. I mean they are the ones that. And, and teachers, when you say that teachers here, teachers are the enemy. And that's not the case at all. It's, it's the unions. And I know the unions are looking out for the best interest of children, but they in Indiana have fought progress at every step of the way. And they have, they have essentially manipulated and lied to teachers about what legislation that would offer up school choice means. And what it means is more freedom, more, more choice in the classroom for a teacher to do what they do best and the way that they do it best regulations or or better um, less regulations on administrators that causes them a lot of grief and more job options because there's more places to teach and that competition raises salaries but instead they fight to keep schooling public they fight to keep a monopoly on education and that keeps wages repressed and then you look at the COVID era and really i mean this kind of makes libertarians uncomfortable when i say this but it's the truth Schools are, for lower-income families, absolutely life-saving organizations, because this is where most of the direct care for the kids takes place. When COVID hit, there were a lot of kids that weren't eating, and school districts had to start putting buses together. Every nonprofit that I've talked to in town on my radio show called Now Hear This that, that works with kids in schools had to transition to feeding kids and dropping off. Like there was this one charity called 913 Sports that, you know, was was taking cycling into schools and teaching kids about cycling. And they had to stop that program and start delivering food with all of their available trailers because kids weren't getting that breakfast and, and lunch. Now you we can look at that and say that's not their government's responsibility. And of course it's not, but we're also we also have to look and go, what are the ways that we have allowed a system to grow that causes such poverty that schools are the only way that kids get reliable meals. Where, where do we need to fix local state and federal policy that keeps people in those cycles of poverty? You know, and then you look at the rise in child abuse. The only way that we know that child abuse is on the rise during COVID is because there are more kids who are dying of abuse in hospitals and all of those kids who had that safety net of going to a teacher or watching the trends of their behavior by a teacher or a school counselor, all that it's dried absolutely up absolutely tragic. And there's, right. there's a ton of tragedy that has, has taken place by shutting down schools. And the people that shut down schools in the face of all of the evidence that school spreads very minimal and does not affect people, it's at the hands of the teachers' union. So I never want to hear another teachers' union talk about being woke and how they care about the underprivileged, And I get that they had a a Sophie's choice of, do we protect our teachers from COVID or do we protect those students from more abuse and hunger? But they chose the teachers and it was a horrible mistake and it needs to be rectified in every school district. You know, the the grades of children are suffering. We've essentially set kids back an entire year by closing down schools. Um, There's ways to open it safely. There's ways to do schooling safely that protects the older teachers you know, with hybrid learning, it's about innovation. And I've seen in the nonprofit sector through this show, massive amounts of innovation we've seen in the the restaurant industry and other industries, a ton of innovation this year, where we haven't seen a lot of innovation is public schooling. And that's because they're not allowed to and who's responsible for that teachers unions. And it's just it's it's madness, and it needs to come to an end. And I think that what COVID has done is clarified the need for government in a lot of areas. If we needed the red tape cut at the FDA and, and all these other places, why do we need to keep it? Get rid of it. And uh, this this is where it's really been driven, driven home. I mean, children are really struggling with their education. Lower income families are struggling to put food on the table because one parent has to stay home. Women like half, I think the the statistics I said is like half of women in the United States have had some uh, job affected or some income affected by this. And if you're a single mother and you're in that fifty percent, I mean, how are you doing it right now? So it's uh, it, it's really a tough time, and you have to lay a lot of that at the
1: the feet. Well, of I the teachers I absolutely one hundred percent agree that you know teachers union are. Or unions are the biggest part of the problem. Now, one of the, you know, I know you maybe not nationally, but if you watch the news here, all of it is Wyoming has a huge spike in coronavirus. Which I guess um, if mm-hmm. you if you look at the population and compare it to the cases, yep, there's there's a spike going on. But where it's not happening is in the schools. By and large, right? They've been pretty successful at. At um, finding creative ways to control—I don't know if you can say that they were controlling the virus—but minimizing the spread inside the school. And I, I, mean, locally, I think our 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 school staff needs, uh, you know, a big attaboy for that or girl as it, as it were. Um, one of the problems that we ran into here mm-hmm. locally is when all the CARES funding came in, it was the administrators that got the largest amount of that money. You know, and surprise, <laughs> surprise, right? When you put an administrator in charge of a big lump sum, what are they going to do? Um, now, I, got another, I have another question that kind of fits with that. Um, over the weekend, I judged our high, our local high school speech and debate tournament. And the topic was, mm-hmm. should the federal government provide a jobs guarantee? Now, out of out of the dozen or so kids that I listened to, only one was able to articulate why the free market can provide jobs for anybody that wants one. The rest of the kids, it was all the federal government has to do this. So how, is it, how do we articulate a, a libertarian thought process to high school age kids when apparently all that they're getting is federal government, federal government, federal government? How do we, how do, we do that?
0: Well, I think we need more libertarian teachers You know, we need more libertarian journalists. We need to stop this idea on the right, on the libertarian side, on the conservative side, that we need to create these secret libertarian conservative only societies, this Benedictine option, essentially, where we're going to create our own universities, create our own schools, create our own, uh, you know, charter schools, create our own newspapers. I think that has shown that impulse by the baby boomer generation has, has really shown to be an ineffective strategy and, and led to some pretty nutty places. Um, and listen, it's not like conservatives, conservatives were pushed out of newsrooms, I pushed out of argument. universities. They, they felt they needed to go, they need to go somewhere else. But the fact is, is uh, fight to right. get back into it, <laughs> you You're know, right. fight, fight to uh, fight for diversity instead of sort of this whiny, Let's start our own thing and then just have build our reputation based on outrage at hypocrisy. I just think it doesn't work. It's not compelling. It gets boring after a while hearing conservatives whine and bitch and moan about everything, you know. And the kids, the kids, the kids are like the main place. But the fact is, is if you go back and read my columns as a, as a junior in high school for the high school newspaper, it's pretty socialist. I think BS. I think like, most
1: high school students you know, were we, kind of little Marxes running around. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like there is, uh, there was, oh, the government needs to do this or that, or that, you know, it was, it was all BS. It was stupid. But, you know, kids are, kids are uh, experimenting with ideas and other things. and, And, you know, our impulse to shelter them with that Benedictine idea of you need to just watch our culture. You can only watch this. Let's you can only watch the Hallmark Channel. We need to protect you from the world. It makes fragile people when they get out into the, to the real world, they're not really prepared because they have not been exposed to different ideas. They've not been exposed to different cultures. They've not been exposed to how to handle problems because we have segregated ourselves into the suburbs and oh by the way you're going to go to hillsdale and you're only going to read the daily wire so then when they get onto the real world they're they become very bitter and angry people and i think libertarians make a huge mistake when they try to do that self-segregation and, and to to your answer it means that we need to encourage Those people to, to, I mean, I know this sounds weird, but stop setting up blogs and YouTube channels and Instagrams to control public opinion, but go get an education degree, become a teacher. I mean, I saw Chard Reed, a teacher here in Indianapolis who taught economics at my school. Uh, He ran for Congress as a libertarian, one of the brightest people I've ever met, great teacher, heritage Christian. Now he's at Carmel, one of the wealthiest school districts in the state as a business teacher. And his textbook is peter Schiff's how an economy grows and why it crashes that guy's going to create way more libertarians than Absolutely, your, your libertarian be. podcaster or, or blogger or whatever like you know that the, the conservative in the newsroom that is contributing opinion pieces like my friend pete seat is the conservative writer for the indie star like that that him in that newsroom gives a conservative to bounce ideas off of like we, we have to stop segregating ourselves and trying to protect ourselves from scary communism, because I'll tell you what, once you kind of wade out of our own little Benedictine worlds, there's a lot of people who don't understand libertarianism, but are kind of curious. Now, when I started this podcast, I had to explain what a libertarian was and what it meant. And that's fewer and far between, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a different thing than people. People kind of think a libertarian is just sort of like a Republican, but with a little more racism.
1: <laughs> or or they or they call us a bunch of anarchists.
0: <laughs> right. Or they, you know, there's a lot of misconception. And I think we do ourselves a disservice when we kind of check stuff out. We, we check out, you know, call your local school district and say, you know, I, I, I was supposed to do a couple speeches to high school classes. And, the, the school districts didn't want that to happen because they didn't want the Libertarian Party to come in and infect the children, um, which I was like, I'm not even in the party, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I'm a podcaster and I'm a uh, this is my alma mater. Like so it was just sort of like weird, but whatever, you know, it's it's it, so during this past election, I tried and it's hard to get in there. But I, so I don't I, I don't know what the answer is other than young people who have these beliefs like that kid who's arguing for the free market considering an education or a journalism degree and having one libertarian in the school system that's not crazy is going to go a long way to getting people to to open up and to think a little bit differently.
1: Well, and I, I think part of the solution too is just to have the discussion, you know, so, so much of our, of our politics now is just vitriolic, you know, you don't agree with me, therefore you're the devil. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that people just need to cowboy up, I guess, and engage in that sort of debate and just have a free exchange of ideas. So I, I kind of want to move to a different topic here. Um, one of the big problems that wyoming Wyoming is facing is we have a huge budget sh- budget shortfall. Um, it's I mean, these numbers are small when you when you probably compare it to the budget of Indiana. Um, I think I think we're short about 200 million dollars, which for Wyoming that's a big number, mm-hmm. and it's all, almost all of it is due to the drop in uh, mineral prices. So roughly 60 percent of Wyoming's revenue comes from mineral royalties. Now, with the the plans that I've that I've read about the incoming administration, um, it's it's going to get worse for extractive industries: coal, oil, natural gas. Um, So how, what would be a libertarian solution to, you know, perhaps, oh, I don't know, close that that funding gap? Um, Wyoming doesn't have a state income tax. Actually, we have some of the lowest taxes in the country. So if, if, just given you the Cliff Notes version of the budget problems, from a libertarian perspective, how would you approach that problem?
0: Hmm. Because uh, see, this is the kind of question that libertarians don't think about because you want to get elected. You've got problems like this because the most obvious answer is how do you close a budget gap? You raise taxes, but we don't want to do that. Right. We want, we want to try and innovate our way out of this. Um, You say that
1: in Wyoming and you'll never get elected. No. Good. Um,
0: <laughs> unless you're a Cheney. I don't know. Is, is, is that Wyoming? Are they from Wyoming?
1: Yeah, they, they have a ranch down in Casper.
0: Okay. I, I have to turn it back on you because I don't know a ton about the state. Like, what, what are some things that maybe have been talked about or that you might
1: think of? We'll get to my answer here in just a second, but first, some gratuitous self-promotion. You can find Cowboy State Politics on any of your podcasting apps. iTunes, TuneIn, Pandora, pretty much anywhere you can find a podcast, you'll find Cowboy State Politics there. Don't forget about the website, CowboyStatePolitics.com. All of the shows are on the site, as well as the show notes. Any of the articles that I've brought up during the program, you can find them there, read them for yourself. You can find the Chris Spangle show on any of the apps that I mentioned. Also, check out his website, wearelibertarians.com. dot com. It's a great resource if you want to know what it is to be a libertarian. So now, back to the program. My my personal opinion is that we could raise the state sales tax, mm. uh, and you know, right now, I think it's I think the tax in town is is six percent, but that's only because Uh, We, our community voted to raise it another penny. But if you, if you raise the state sales tax, then everybody pays it. And, you know, regardless, if you go buy a car or whatever, you have to pay sales tax on it. And secondly, from a free market standpoint, it's entirely voluntary. Sure. If you don't, if you don't want to pay that tax, don't go buy a new car and let the terrorists win. I'm just just (laughs) go
0: Go to Montana and buy one.
1: Right. Well, and that happens too. And a lot of people from here do their, do their shopping up there because there's no sales tax. Hmm. So I think if, if states, not just Wyoming, but would look at it from a sales tax perspective, I, I think that's one, a fair solution. Two, it would raise money. And three, it's entirely voluntary. Sales
0: taxes at the state level, those states tend to do better economically and get more investment. I mean, look at what's happening in Texas right now. I don't believe they have income tax and they they have sales tax. I think is how they fund stuff and they're getting every business from California. You know, the, the reliance on a single industry for your tax base is really kind of crazy. and And it's, you know, it's, it's, it is going to hit your state hard once biden comes in because there isn't going to be a lot of investment and there is going to be so that the for those listening here's why you why it matters like a state can't print money and the federal government puts certain mandates on states that they must fulfill like for instance medicaid medicare through obamacare you have uh certain targets that you have to hit for all these different things and so you know, there, you have to have taxes in this day and age with, the, with the government is bit like getting the federal government to shrink is the best thing we can do for state and local governments, because the less power they have, the less it's going to cost you on your local taxes, the local revenue and less speeding tickets because that's the best way that they have. It's the last way they have to raise revenue here in Indiana. Um, so a lot of those unfunded mandates really hurt. And so You know, I imagine that your government, the next next thing I'd think is cut, cut, cut. But I can't imagine that you have a big state government with a lot of big programs
1: like a California. There's probably not a lot to cut there. I mean. Well, no, the uh, the places that are left to cut are programs that are dealing with uh, mental health, for example. I'm doing an interview tomorrow uh, with a group that uh, they they basically take in a whole family that's got, you know, DFS issues, and, you know, perhaps they're in the court system, and they work with the entire family. Well, that program costs the state roughly two to three million dollars a year, and they're on the governor's chopping block. Right. Um, So really, the only places that are left to cut are going to hurt. And, you know, because so much of our economy is based on coal, natural gas, and oil, and that money's drying up so the revenue has to come from somewhere
0: and you're probably right that the most fair is half a percent raise in the state sales tax you know and you'll probably cover that budget shortfall but is your legislature going to do that (laughs) no
1: (laughs) they are our legislature is well let me let me just back up a little bit and kind of give you a cliff notes version of wyoming You know, most people in Wyoming are libertarians, Mm -hmm. um, but some of them don't know that they are, and some of them wouldn't admit it if they are. But you know, we're a very independent state, and actually, we're going to get in my next question. We'll get we'll get to more independence, but um, there there is just an, an anathema to raising taxes here. It's because, you know, Wyoming is not a rich state and most people that live here, unless you live in the People's Republic of Jackson, um, are not (laughs) are not wealthy individuals. You know, it's it's, you know, people that own a ranch that barely scrape by, you know, so the the only solution, not the only solution, but one of the only solutions that are left in raising taxes is going to hurt, you know, just about everybody in the state. So speaking of being independent and let me let me throw oh, in
0: before we move on to that i mean go ahead what what kind of um in terms of encouraging innovation and and tax incentives for new tech or i know like idaho has has made good progress in kind of bringing in some of that tech industry and I, I don't know how many of the californians you want to import not but, that many right well so <laughs> Just what about, kidding. What about like Indiana has really tried to, like we have Salesforce, they're the biggest employer in Indianapolis at this point, I think. What about encouraging more, you don't have the income tax, so this isn't as helpful, but you know more people paying that sales tax by getting more people to move to your state. I mean, has there been any discussion about kind of tax breaks for companies that wanna move from one of
1: these socialist states like Illinois? Uh, two things, there's, um... There's a lot of a lot of industry that Wyoming would would be a perfect fit for. You know, we have we have low taxes, and a lot of communities have developed wh- what they're calling tech parks. Probably the most successful one is in Sheridan, Wyoming, which is 30 miles north from where I live. Um, Weatherby Firearms moved there. Mm. When you know, a huge huge industry. So most communities have taken upon taken it upon themselves to to find a spot for a business to move to and you know they've upgraded the upgraded the internet access upgraded the uh the infrastructure water sewer those sorts of things so there is there is incentive for companies to move here the problem with wyoming is finding labor Mm. now one of the one of the more interesting industries that's cropped up here is the hemp industry Mm, yeah, I mean, there, there's a guy here in town, he owned a flower shop. And he's, he told me, well, this was a month ago, he told me that he's thinking of completely doing away with the pretty flowers and just doing hemp because just his business alone can clear half a million dollars a year. Now think about right. think about the tax revenue that's going to come from that half a million dollars a year. And I think Wyoming as a state just needs to be more open to other types of industries. I don't know if it's tech or if it's hemp or, you know, what the what the magic bullet is, but they just need to be more open to inviting industries in so they can move from socialist Indiana or communist California.
0: Yeah. Oh, and this is a big strategy for almost every state. So there's a lot of competition for that stuff. And it's, it's easier for businesses to go, I want to kind of be in warm Houston or, or Tampa versus Wyoming in the middle. Yeah, it's not
1: warm here most of the year. <laughs> yeah. So my next question, Chris, is one big, huge thing that's happening right now is our governor's mask mandate. Mm-hmm. And there have been protests. Now, you have to understand, a Wyoming protest looks nothing like a Washington, D.C. protest. <laughs> you know, it's usually like...
0: expected, not feared.
1: <laughs> right, you know... Uh, it's usually like 50 or 100 people, but there's been a lot of pushback on um, his mask mandate. And one of the episodes I did, I don't think it was two weeks ago, covered it. But um, I'm curious, what's your what what feeling are you getting in Indiana from mask mandates or mandates in general?
0: It's probably not much different than your situation there. I mean Indiana is a very libertarian state, uh, very in, probably more independent than libertarian. Um, you know, the, the state went for Obama in '08. like it's a, it's a blue collar state. It's an agricultural state still, you know, even though 20% lives in Indianapolis, it's still fairly conservative. Um, the, the reality of all this is I'm, I'm not a COVID hoaxer.
1: <laughs> I don't no, know neither am I. People. It's definitely no joke.
0: Yeah, I think it's something to be taken seriously. I think it's something to adjust your behavior. And, and I don't think that like we can blame all of the, the, the shutdown, the government shutdowns for the temp, you know, the loss of every business. I mean, people were not going to go to big events and companies were not going to hold large events for insurance purposes and just out of common decency. Um, and, you know, people, despite lockdowns, are still going to restaurants. People, th- th- I think what, COVID has shown, what the pandemic has shown is the American system is still a system where the government is fairly weak. And even when it tries hard to impose sanctions on people, it's still an individual's choice on how to act. And the harder the government tries to lock down, the harder the government tries to force a mandate of any kind, the more pushback it breeds, the more conspiracies we get out of it, the the worse the outcome tends to be. And so, you know, I actually heard Anthony Fauci talk about this on an interview with uh, CBS, I think it was, and a podcast of theirs and um, major somebody, major Garrett.
1: And he asked him, you know,
0: are you for a, a mandatory vaccine? And he said, absolutely not. Because when you mandate a vaccine, you get a lot of backlash and You end up not getting more. You get end up getting less people vaccinated because of personal liberty. And so the best way is to just persuade people, and let them make that choice. And more people will make the right choice than won't. And there's just a certain portion of the population that won't take the vaccine. That's how I feel about masks. That's how I feel about you know all of this. I mean, the, the NBA and the NCAA shut down like two weeks before. Trump came out with the CDC guidelines that was the cover for all of these states to shut down. You know, they were doing what was in their best interest and the best interest of their customers two weeks before the government decided that it could horn in on this and try to take credit or blame. You know, people were going to adjust their behavior. They were going to do things differently and they were going to be responsible about it. And this is like uncertainty is the biggest killer of economic growth. And the pandemic has been a big driver of uncertainty, but it's also driven a lot of innovation. There's a lot of businesses, the nonprofits that have innovated. And obviously the, the free market worked really well in cranking out the vaccine. And, you know, we should be celebrating some of that innovation and the the response of the free market while illustrating that the government is taking nine months to get you $600. They're, they're incompetent, they're impotent, and they can't really save you from anything. They can't, they can't, we, we have this myth that the government somehow is needed to protect us in times of crises. And all that government at the state, local and federal level has done is increase the amount of uncertainty. Like event companies didn't totally just shut down through 2021 because of COVID. They also shut down because they didn't know what the rules would be in different states and cities. And so they're going to be slower to restart when it's safe to do so because there will still be all of these rules and regulations across the country that they can't, they can't, it becomes a compliance issue. They don't have the, the time and energy to do that. And so these, these governors are really making a huge mistake and one creating more backlash Two, that resentment causes bad actors to act worse. And then, you know, those bad actors go, if it weren't for the government, I wouldn't do this. Th-. And then you just go, okay, well, then you're proving the point that government's necessary. Like, just do what's in the best interest of the community and other people won't see you as the problem and go, yeah, maybe we need the government to force these people to do what needs to be done. You know? So I think, I think libertarians by and large have kind of made the wrong argument across the board the entire time by saying the this is not that serious. We don't need to overreact. We don't need masks. They don't work. Like all that stuff is just so counter and foreign to the majority of the population that they see them as, followers of Alex Jones. And then they kind of write them off as them. But the message that was working and will work and people grab onto is that, yeah, this is serious, but it just is made worse by government causing more uncertainty, causing bad actors to act worse. Like, and it's a, so it's a, it's a Liberty issue, you know? So people still care about Liberty. They still care about their freedoms and that becomes the issue that they're fighting instead of, whether or not to wear a mask for personal protection.
1: Well what you what you just explained is such an important point that most people given given the opportunity will do the right thing. You yeah. know, because because they are by we are by nature self-interested. And if if they're just given given the chance, they're going to make the right decisions, you know. Yeah. For example, I'm a type 1 diabetic, so it doesn't make a lot of sense for me to go hang out in a busy bar. Right? right? Because I could get really sick and probably, you know, I might, I might die. So because I'm self-interested, I make the choice not to go down to uh, the local bar, which interestingly enough, we call the Star Wars bar. (laughs) Um, But, um, you know, I'm self-interested and I'm responsible for my own choices. And I think that you're absolutely right that libertarians made the, the 100% wrong argument. It should have been based in liberty. That is you know your life you are responsible for your life and the choices that you make and you ought to make the one that's best for you and your family
0: right and i I think it just comes down to a lack of trust of other people you know and libertarians trust other people less than most other groups um and i think it's partly because we swim in the stew of here's all the horrible things that happened and governments are responsible like it's not a very hopeful movement a lot of times, and I think that that kind of cynicism and negativity kind of overtakes, and we end up missing out on the good stories of the empathy and the uh, the, the caring for our fellow man that really libertarianism is attractive when you start talking about that stuff. That, look, the nonprofit sector has exploded in the last 50 years, and that is because people are empathetic and when they hear a sad, tough story, their empathy is triggered and they'll fund it. Global poverty has been cut in half since 1990 because of free markets. You know, there is a path to solving a lot of this misery and we, we have to make that case. And uh, it's something that I try to do and, and, you know, not always effectively, but I mean, that's really where my heart is and why I do things like the radio shows because you just see the empathy that people have for others, the care that people have for others, the the biggest challenges in our society are being taken on by nonprofits and for-profit com- companies, and, and it's done effectively. And sometimes the government helps in some of that with funding. Some a lot of times it's just in the way. Um, but at the end of the day, the progress that is made in solving some of these big societal issues are done by nonprofits, universities, and the private sector. And I think COVID and the pandemic are a huge part of that. You've seen great innovation take place through the pandemic and in all these different places. You've seen acts of heroism and people taking care of each other. And, you know, when you talk to food banks here in Indianapolis, the 12th largest city, they go, we've never wanted for food. Like our, our need has doubled to quadrupled at times but we've never not had enough because companies and individuals stepped up to make sure that everybody got fed. Those are great stories to tell. Those are great wins and we should not be afraid to talk about that instead of which, which I think is a depressing message in that, you know, Pfizer is trying to kill you for profit and all your friends are starving because of the government.
1: You know, I just exactly don't think right. that's a very
0: right. hopeful message and I don't think it's a winning message.
1: Well and I think that it's it's a classic example of where when when individuals are given the chance they will help out each other. I mean what's more efficient, you know, my mom making a casserole and taking it across the street and setting it on, you know, next to the mailbox or waiting for a $600 check that's not really going to help you at all,
0: right? It's it's barely it's fairly ineffective. I mean the government has done nothing but hurt. <laughs> I mean other than the, the one place that the government, in my mind, was effective is that it promised to buy a lot of vaccines that gave the, the funding to these companies to innovate. They got out of the way in terms of the, the FDA clearing some of this stuff. But we wouldn't be in the mess in America if, if it weren't for the FDA and the CDC completely blowing testing in the first you know three months of this thing. You know, we would not have had the economic downturn had the Trump administration, the HHS, the CDC and the FDA blown it and made all the wrong decisions in March, April and May. I mean, it's it cannot be understated how perilous that was for this country and how many people that killed and how many people that put out of work, because people didn't have the basic information of whether or not they were positive. Like if you had a positive test in your hand your behavior is going to be wildly different for two weeks than if you don't know. And exactly so not having testing really until midsummer is what destroyed the economy. It was not just the governors locking stuff down, but it was really that failure at testing and people not having the information to make the right choices because you're right, they're self-interested. Give people the, all the information, they'll make the right choice nine times out of ten.
1: Well, my, my last question I have for you Chris is and I think this is going to be perfect. I'm going to use it to to kind of make a point. Now in the last 45 50 minutes you and I have agreed on just about everything. Yeah. However, the 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 one part, one big thing that you and I do disagree on is Trump. And I want I just want to explain to everybody that's listening that you know, we can we can have a discussion where we agree on 80% of of just about every topic and yet we can still have a a an intelligent discussion even though we disagree on that 20 percent so here's my last question so um, one of one of your previous episodes the main aversion you expressed with Trump is that he's a giant jackass which I'll admit he can be a jackass sometimes so but if you look at all the things that he got accomplished uh, in my opinion libertarians should love it you know Originalists on the Supreme Court and all of the uh, the federal courts, um, lowering taxes, um, decreasing regulation. You know, in my opinion, libertarians should love all of the things that Donald Trump has done. Why don't you?
0: Well, if it were as simple as he's just a jackass,
1: then I, I wouldn't feel the
0: way. I, I mean, my opinion on Donald Trump up until COVID was 180. You know, I felt that he wasn't given a fair shake. I felt that he was misunderstood. You know, I I wasn't for him being impeached. And really through this summer, I saw that I was wrong and his opposition was right. (laughs) I mean, I I think his behavior through 2021 sort of exposed to me how deep his impulse for self-protection is to the point that it will put others at risk, including the country. I don't think that he is a person that cares about liberty i think he cares about what is good for donald trump and i don't believe that that person yes the things that like like the vaccine good breaking the fever for interventionism on the right good those are good things the tax cut lowering the corporate interest rate that's good but every time the guy got a win like that he it's like one step forward, one step back. You know the tax kind of fumbled cuts, the ball. Yeah, the tax cuts, the tax cuts get erased essentially by the tariff. So twelve hundred dollars a family get get tax cuts, eight hundred dollars a month extra in tariff fees. You know, I don't consider uh, Kavanaugh to be a win necessarily on the Supreme Court. I do think Gorsuch and uh, ACB are a win, um, but I think Kavanaugh on personal liberties is is a disaster. You know, so for every Gorsuch, there is a Kavanaugh. You, you can go down the list of every one of Trump's wins, and he shot himself in the foot because he's transactional. He's not an ideologue. He doesn't have a set of founding principles. Now, in some ways, that would be good uh, normally, um, you know, and he's, he's incredibly tough in taking criticism. So he doesn't mind moving the embassy. He doesn't mind moving uh, to building a wall. He doesn't mind doing these things that, you know, I agree or disagree with. Um, because he just doesn't really care. Like in, and in some ways, libertarians are attracted to that lack of give-a-crapness. <laughs> I don't know what to <laughs> call it. Um, but that often doesn't benefit liberty. You know, I think the, the – uh, I really for the first time was disgusted with Trump with the kids at the cages, where you have now 1,200 orphans that the United States government created – doesn't matter what president is doing that if if you had the kind of conditions that were happening there and the um the separations that took place like it doesn't matter who the president is that's horrendous that's one of the worst things the federal government has done in my lifetime and there's that that give no gives a crap attitude didn't curb his behavior he doubled down on it so that's where that kind of attitude backfires. It doesn't. He doesn't take that criticism and then take it in and think about it and try to change policy because, at the end of the day, he really views his position as Roy Cohn and the mob, the mob boss, who when you walk in, if you he didn't get his way, he's going to hit you with a baseball bat. You know, I mean, he said that in interviews that that's sort of how he views power. It's it's his way or the highway. He's perfectly willing to create his reality. And you have to live in it and accept his reality or else like and I just I think he's a very poor leader. I think he is a very um, obstinate person. And when you are at the head of a, when you're at the head of a government that has life or death decisions for people, you really need to have the mental flexibility to take criticism and maybe consider that you're wrong, you know, and. Uh, I really kind of started changing my mind. The moment that made me go, maybe I'm wrong about Donald Trump was when he gassed the, the gas people to get the photo op to, you know, as an evangelical Christian, he's he's basically using my religion, you know, using a church and a Bible to try and manipulate me into thinking he's on my team and he was willing to hurt people to do it and and then starts talking about releasing the 82nd airborne on american citizens and i just went this guy is not the this guy's not good <laughs> you know and and what is when you have somebody who really can't be controlled can't be thoughtful is going to do whatever he wants to do yeah, he's he's got non-interventionist tendencies, but if Donald Trump won a second term and he felt that it was in his interest to start a war with Iran as he was talking about in October, like he'd do it. Like there isn't a a set of principles like a Rand Paul that he's operating from. You know, he is just about holding on to power. And that's really kind of the fundamental opposition uh, opposite of what we believe as libertarians. Like he, you're, the rule of law matters more than the rule of man. Like just because we like this guy and we like his machismo, it doesn't mean that we should just bend down and make excuses for everything that he does. I think I think he has been incredibly harmful to the minds of the right. And I think that we, we have taken on these grains of truth, like the media is biased, uh, that government is corrupt. And he has used some of those as tools to, wipe away any bad intent or bad deeds that he's done like he doesn't do anything wrong because the media is against him well no that's not the truth because any president does something wrong any president has corruption or scandals in their administration and he never could be held to count for anything
1: except if you're barack obama there was not a hint of corruption right
0: you know I, i mean right like you need opposition because you need like the opposition to point out fast and furious and you need them to point out Benghazi. We all know what happened in Benghazi, you know, and, and, and it sucks that the, the media didn't, they wiped that away as a right leaning conspiracy theory because it wasn't, we all know what happened. Um, but it, it's, I, I just look at pure power politics and I go, just because I have an affinity, I have a coalitional instinct for the right. And I secretly would prefer Republicans to be empowered than Democrats. It doesn't mean that I should allow that instinct to go, OK, well, you guys should have all the power and the left should have none of the power because I don't think that's the right way. I don't think that's the constitute. I'm a constitutionalist like Trump, if anything, has made me more of a constitutional conservative in that I now see the importance of private institutions, the importance of the constitutional system. Because I've seen him try to test it, and I see it hold up, and I appreciate the Republican form of government, small R, um, more than than ever before. And uh, as an anarchist at heart, but a constitutionalist in practice, I, I just can't look at a guy who thinks that he should have power, no matter what. No, he'll make up, no matter he'll lie about it. He'll cheat. He'll steal. He'll change whatever laws he'll. I, I just um, I can't get on board like I, I believe in the rule of law like there should be a set um, there should be set rules for people who have power and they should be followed and when they don't follow them they should be impeached they should be put in jail and Donald Trump and many people in his administration don't think that the rules apply to them and you know why It's because they really haven't <laughs> like what has Donald Trump really been held accountable for like nobody takes the Democrats seriously. Um, and this is the, the importance of in-group policing. Everybody expects Nancy Pelosi to be against Donald Trump. Nobody expects the Republicans to be against Donald Trump. So when a Mitt Romney comes out and says, this is not appropriate, it, it carries more weight for a while. I mean, eventually, if he's always against him, you know, now if Mitt Romney says Trump is right on something, that's the that's the big news. But like, it is important. There has to be some opposition. That balancing of tension is really what the the american system is about there's always well, going to be opposition and you gotta yeah. balance that tension out
1: and i mean the hist- the history of american politics is well not just the history but i think the whole point is that it's it's supposed to be raucous i mean it, it always has been i yeah. mean you could you could make a credible argument that most of the constitution was decided upon in a bar across the street from independence <laughs> hall right you know and you know for me um, i'm I'm more results based when I look at it, and you know what's what's best for me, what's best for Wyoming. And you know, a lot of the a lot of the things that have come out of the the Trump administration have been fantastic for, you know for me and Wyoming. Now, I, I will agree that i don't I don't think that there's an ideology that's at work with with the Trump administration. I mean, I, he really is a businessman. And you know, having worked in a couple of big businesses, they're all transactional in nature. I mean, it's it's what's best for the business. So I, I will agree with you there. But you know, the the cutting of cutting of regulations, um, you know, freed a lot of people in Wyoming companies in Wyoming to to really do pretty well. You know, the and I you probably haven't heard about this, but one big sticking point in Wyoming is about sage grouse. They're this little this little bird and their oh yeah
0: yeah yeah, yeah. to but, but tell people because I've I've heard of this yeah
1: yeah well it's the sage grouse it's they when they breed they have a strutting ground it's actually kind of cool to watch and really the the strutting ground itself is is pretty fragile like if you were to you know drive a car through it well the sage grouse aren't going to come back and they're not going to breed there but where where we run afoul of that. Is when groups like the Sierra Club or you you can probably pick any any liberal environmental group and they've talked about sage-grouse is they take it to an extreme so now the law is you can't do anything within a half a mile of one of these little little strutting grounds which is which is just ridiculous animals adapt and I've I've got a stack of pictures that'll show you sage-grouse eating off of a well pad so reductions in in environmental regulations, while they're painted by, you know, the big time media as, oh, we hate the environment, we want to trash the place. That's not exactly true at all. In fact, you know, most companies, they want to do, do things the right way, because it costs a lot more money to fix what you screwed up. Right. So uh, most companies will be responsible. And what the Trump administration was able to do was you know, decrease those regulations, not, not eliminate them completely, because that would just be irresponsible, but to allow companies to do, to do the work that they do to make money. And that, that's been really helpful for <coughs> Wyoming. Um, but that's just one example. So for me, you know, I look at the, you know, I'm kind of results-based when it comes to Donald Trump. I think that he can be a giant jackass sometimes, admittedly, as we're seeing right now. Um, But, you know, the whole point I wanted to make to our to our audience is that, you know, you and I agree on probably more than 80 percent of things. And we disagree on, you know, the the big national, you know, the national issue of Trump versus Biden. But yet we're still able to to sit down and have an intelligent conversation and perhaps come to some sort of, you know, maybe maybe. It's possible that we could come to a solution by focusing on the th- things that we agree on. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, me, of
0: course. First. I mean, I'm listen. I don't hate Trump supporting people. Like I, you know, I get it, and I, uh, I just don't like the argument for Trump is but the left. You know, but that's just not the 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 scope that I'm using. You know, it's is he effective and is he libertarian, and he just. He falls. He's twofold. not a libertarian. He, he's just not a libertarian. You know, and on regulations Let me just say this, like on the regulation stuff. Yes, there is this idea that Trump has been a great cutter of regulations, and that is that is absolutely true. And that's one of the good things. But because he is uninterested in the job and he is uninterested in understanding his role as president or how his agencies work. He has let a lot of these positions atrophy and he never ended those positions like he should have in this in this interregnum period. Like he should be shutting down as many of this stuff, as, as much of this stuff as possible. Because if you read, um, there's a great book by Michael Lewis, the Moneyball Guy who wrote, uh, it's called The Fifth Risk. And it basically is all about Trump's transition and how poor his initial transition was and how that kind of got him off to a poor start. And Trump didn't fill out maybe like 25% of the government. And so there's been all of these positions that just have never been filled or these jobs that never got replaced. And so he missed a huge opportunity to put his long-term stamp on the (coughs) federal, on the federal government. COVID. Excuse me. Yeah. (coughs) Um, I have a cold and, uh, I'm just crying about (coughs) regulations. Um, But long story short, there's all these positions he didn't fill out. So now, instead of like 10% of those jobs to fill like a normal president, Biden's going to have like 40, 50%. And so the long-term ramifications of having a person that doesn't understand bureaucracy at the head of the government was not a net win in the long term because now you're going to have long-term bureaucrats that are there for 30 years that believe like Joe Biden and not AEI or the Heritage Foundation. Excuse me.
1: <clears throat> no, so, I yeah. So that I that's my right.
0: that's why I don't necessarily like I just don't think that he was as effective as people would like to think he was.
1: Well, and I you know I'm fair enough on that one, but I I would be remiss in in not plugging your website. You know, if you if you Chris one of Chris's mottos is Sound smarter to your friends, <laughs> and if you if you check out his website, there's a number of different uh, different podcasts that he's done that really do explain um, what it means to be a libertarian and elicits the mindset behind it. So you should really check out we are we are dot com and listen to Chris's show. It's really enlightening. He does a good job. Um, so Chris, thank you very much for taking the time to. Uh, to come on cowboy state politics and you're you're absolutely welcome anytime you want to come back
0: well thank you so much for having me i appreciate it
1: all right well you have a good day sir and merry christmas you too libertarians in short are the real conservatives in the room though we've been led to believe that a different letter connotes who's a conservative and who is not most often though it's only that letter that distinguishes the two parties both believe in a more expansive and more intrusive government Libertarians advocate for the smallest state possible that can still operate. It is private industry and private enterprise that solves most of our problems most efficiently, not the government. They usually just mess things up. Individual liberties are not guaranteed by the government. They are infringed on by it. And the only acceptable use of government coercion is to prevent actual harm to another person. If we're not harming someone else, the government just needs to leave us the heck alone. When you think about it, being a libertarian sounds a lot like just being from Wyoming. From the base of the Bighorns, in beautiful Buffalo, Wyoming, I'm David Iverson, and this is Cowboy State Politics.